He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, he's outspoken. You will tell your kids, and your grandkids, and your great, great grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Power Trip of Wrestling Podcasting Empire here on Podomatic and Podbean and Spotify and iHeartRadio and all the great places you get your podcasts. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined on the two-man power trip by my co-host, the one and only John Paz. And on this show, we have a very special co-host, a guy that, you know, John and I were watching this guy when we were knee-high to a grasshopper, and we're so happy to call him our third member of this triple threat. He is the originator of the triple threat, the one and only franchise, Shane Douglas. Shane, welcome to episode 39. Man, I'm chomping at the bit. There's so much news to talk about. (laughs) Most of it absurdly ridiculous, retarded, that I I can't wait to get chomping into this episode 39 because I'm going to tear some assholes tonight because this is goddamn ridiculous, the shit that's going on. Folks, he's in rare form tonight, so let's, uh, let's take the ball and run with it. I want to share a quote really quick. It says, don't be afraid of being different. Be afraid of being the same as everyone else. So that is the theme of this podcast, and I want everybody who <laughs> likes to listen to this for the first time to know that this is not your regular podcast. We are going to cover a lot of topics, and when the franchise likes to shoot, he shoots to kill, and tonight I have a feeling it's going to be no exception and could be setting somewhat of a precedent with a lot of the world news I know the franchise has been dying to talk about for the last week. But before we get into all that, I'd like to do a little show maintenance, and we got to just cover a couple of things here. And first, it's coming off of another week where, Shane, you know, all you did was just kind of share your view of uh, the Sammy Callahan, uh, Eddie Edwards <laughs> yeah. bat spot. You, you barely sa- – I, I swear, you barely said anything uh, outside of – you know, just saying it was, quote, the dumbest thing you'd ever seen in or uh, one of the dumbest things you'd ever seen in your near 40 years in the business. And, you know, whether it's an angle or not, Sammy Callahan took the bait and said the following that he said, wait, what? Now the franchise wants to jump on the bandwagon and bury me. 
How much remorse did you show when you broke the neck of Pitbull Gary Wolf? Hashtag hypocrite. <laughs> so if we're talking shooting Shane, I don't know if it's an angle or not, but that was Sammy Callahan's response to, uh, to what you had to say last week on the show. Look, I'm not going to give this much credence because it's, to me, it's, it's so ridiculously over the top. It doesn't deserve being talked about, but I stand by what I said. And as far as, wait, what, what I did to Gary Wolf, Gary Wolf took a bump incorrectly uh, back then. And ECW turned that into an angle that created vast interest in the wrestling industry. And Gary Wolf was supposed to get the halo off the week before he was healed. And kudos to him, like I said on Twitter today, he kept it on for an additional week. That's how loyal he was to ECW and to the fans of ECW. I didn't miss swinging with an aluminum baseball bat and hit Gary Wolf in the neck and break his neck. Uh, Any more than when Bam Bam hit me with a crutch and ended up breaking some bones in my arm. Accidents can happen, but accidents happen as was done in that case. Was so absurdly, first of all, if you're swinging a real baseball bat, cue to Sammy. Hit the goddamn chair, not the face. That's the first thing. Secondly, you almost hit the referee when you threw the chair in. So, uh, uh, whatever part of this, like if you're so blinded by you're into your character and can't perform to a safe level, that's on you, brother. That's on you, not on the guy that's laying there letting you hit him in the face uh, or the referee who just happened to be paying attention and got the hell out of the way in time to not be hit with a chair. That's all I'm going to say about it. And I'm not going to make another comment on Twitter or any place else. The video stands for itself. It was, a, it was a ridiculously stupid thing to even attempt to do. Let, let's assume that he was going to hit the chair. What would that have done? So you've got a big open chair standing on somebody's chest and you hit it with a, with a baseball bat. What would that have done? Uh, made the people believe you killed him when you hit a chair that was three feet above his head? Uh, so it was either a dumbass spot to begin with or it was executed in a dumbass fashion. Leave it at that. And for anybody who wants to troll me online, have at it because you wouldn't be the first or the last. It was a goddamn stupid thing to do. And to have a kid with a broken orbital bone because of it, that's way beyond jumping on any bandwagon. Anybody knows the franchise knows. I don't jump on bandwagons. I usually create them. Uh, but that was stupid with a capital S. I, I, I got to tell you, I mean, the response has been huge uh, to the YouTube video. And we've been talking about for the last two weeks as the YouTube channel for the show grows. Uh, I mean, when I put the video up, I had no idea the, um, you know, the immediate response it was going to have uh, just with the fans picking up. And, and literally, I mean, we've been talking about the march to a million views. Even from when I sent out the initial show breakdown yesterday, the, the video itself has gone up 2,000 views. Our channel is going to be nearing a million views probably within the next week or so. Uh, and it's a topic that a lot of people are still talking about. But, you know, whether or not Sammy's playing it up or not, this is where I want to kind of bring uh, John into the mix here. And, John, I mean, I've been kind of showing you some of the comments that are uh, being said underneath the video, but I think Sammy Callahan himself, 
even posted underneath the video. So now, I mean, I guess you can kind of put your little shooting pants on there, John. Do you think Sammy Callahan might have gone out of his way and commented on our YouTube video because he was that either dedicated to his character or was that, you know, pissed that uh, people are calling him out? I don't know. At this point, I feel like maybe he's just vanity searching himself and he saw a big name attached to a quote. Like he saw Cornette made a remark, saw Shane made a remark. So I think maybe he's he's kind of just vanity searching himself and seeing what big names he can, you know, associate with what he did and, and quote-unquote make himself the hashtag the draw. So I feel like it, it's very um, systematic in what he's doing and it's very calculated in what he's doing. I feel like he made a mistake in the ring and now he's trying to capitalize on it. But one thing I noticed that uh, now he has a T-shirt on Pro Wrestling Tees and he went out of his way to say that all the money goes to him, which makes me in turn think that probably all the money from that T-shirt is going to Eddie Edwards. So maybe he isn't so much of the heel and the bad guys we think, and maybe he's just you know living the gimmick, and maybe he's just turning it into something profitable for himself, as Shane likes to say. He likes to turn that chicken shit into chicken salad. Yeah, look, if that's the case and the money's going to Eddie for that, that that's the proper thing to do. Like, I've met Sammy several times. He's always been a good guy. Um, I'm not saying that he was a, an asshole for making a mistake or screwing something up in the ring. Any of us could do that. But to me, even the attempt of doing it in the ring, with, you know, in the land of WWE today, uh, rubber barbed wire and balsa wood chairs and all the rest of this stuff, plexiglass that doesn't break, uh, in the elimination chamber last, last year. Uh, it's not so hard to imagine if you're going to do that kind of a spot, uh, maybe it's better to shoot on TNA that they send somebody out there being so cheap that they would use a real baseball bat in that kind of a spot. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, to me, to try to go out and then, you know, step beyond that and turn it into an angle, I think somebody would have been far better ahead of the chase to say, hey, you know, we went too far. If you want to stay in character, say I went too far and fucked up, whatever. I, I don't know. But like, to, to see this whole thing play, when I first saw the video and everybody I watched it with felt the same thing including uh, an 86-year-old Dominic DiNucci watching it. Uh, at what point do you draw the line? I've been saying this for years. It's no longer about can you jump higher or further or faster or beyond what the last guy did. Learn to tell a story. And if you can do that, you don't need to bash somebody in the face with a baseball bat. You don't need to jump higher, faster, further, or further or uh, beyond. It's just a question then of learning your craft. Uh, I could go to any bar tonight and pay 10 bucks to somebody and say, hey, come in here and bash one of my podcast partners in the face with a baseball bat. doesn't take talent. Like Dominic DeLuca said this past week, the, the pro in pro wrestling stands for professional, implying you know what the hell you're doing. I, just in case you didn't hear me, if you come to bat somebody in the face uh, with a baseball bat, make sure it's John. He's uh, he's bigger than me. So <laughs> no, it, 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 it would you be smarter to do it that way. You both got to lay there and, and take. You got to trust me. Just just trust me. 
I wouldn't screw up <laughs> wrestler's honor. <laughs> you know, and uh, one guy I heard comment about it was, uh, was, you know, one of my favorites now is Vince Russo. Vince Russo said whenever he swung that baseball bat that he used and he was famous for, same thing with Sting, they were rubber bats. So whoever yep. let, whether it was Don Callis or Scott Demore or who's ever in charge now at TNA, that let him go out there with a real legit bat, that could be where the blame is placed just because you gave the guy a real freaking bat to use, and guess what? It bashed the other guy in the freaking face. Yeah. Imagine that. Broke his old, a real baseball bat being swung by a, a, a badass dude smash somebody's face. Wow, there's a there's a shocker. Imagine that. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say a shocker at all. No, definitely not. But you know, that's definitely it, it's still out there. The video is, um, you know, it's it's the last video that we published, so it's uh, it's right at the top of the list. And it's uh, every day. I mean, there's new comments, and you know, maybe a little bit later on, if we have some time, there's a couple that I want to read to you, Shane, because they're. Uh, they're a little out there. Some people a uh, little opinionated, and uh, they have their platform to use it, whether it's Twitter or YouTube or Facebook. My goodness, they get to say whatever the hell they want, and all you get to do is sit on the other side and take it and like it. So uh, maybe if I, we have a little bit I don't of read time, them. So they can say what they want. I don't read them. Look, my career is, <laughs> is written what it is. It's, it's, it, when, when somebody has one that equals mine, then, then they can then they can call me to the carpet for it. But as far as I'm concerned, like I've always said, talk good about me, talk bad about me, just talk about me. Uh, we'll leave it at that. We will leave it at that. And I want to cover here quick too. You know, we like to recap your weekends. You were up there, I believe, in Michigan this past weekend, and you had Dominic Danucci with you. How was your weekend again with Dominic? And are you getting used to this travel partner of yours now? Somebody who uh, yes. definitely he. He showed you the ropes. Now you're bringing him across the country. <laughs> yeah, you know what? He's again, you know, not to harp on it, but at 86 years old, he's in such incredibly good shape that you know it's it's like being 30 years ago. You know, it's like going on the road with Dominic 30 years ago. Uh, he's slow to hair, obviously, but he's as sharp as he's ever been. Uh, still in phenomenal shape, and still really gets it you know even as much as the industry has changed we'll get in the car after the show and he'll comment on the things that he watched that night and it sounds like me talking to myself you know hence obviously who i've learned from uh you know but it's fantastic for me it's just uh like i've commented multiple times before dominic's like a second father to me not that i needed one but he became that just because, uh, you know, of his role as my mentor and and our close friendship over these long, many years now. Uh, to have Dominic with me on the road and then to see the response from the fans and from mostly the boys in the dressing room. Uh, so excited to see this guy and, and, you know, getting a second standing ovation in two weeks. Professional wrestling fans get it. Like I said in in my speech this past Saturday night, we throw words like icon and legend around pretty loosely today. If you've been around longer than 10 years, you're an icon. Longer than 15 years, you're a legend. Uh, Dominic DiNucci fits the bill on both cases. He's a legitimate icon. He's a legitimate legend, having survived in the industry for over 55 years and and accomplished the things that he's accomplished in the industry. So for me to sit with him 
in the car for three, four hours at a time and just relive those days and, and go back to it. And then him to reiterate to me all the things that I've thought I knew about the business and realizing where my, uh, where my philosophies come from that guy, uh, I guess it's like I'm listening to myself talk in the car when I hear him talk, just a phenomenal time. And, and, uh, as many times I can take Dominic on the road with me to places and uh, watch the fans, to me, that just is, is the, about the coolest that I can imagine at this stage of my career and at this stage of his life. I'm thrilled he's still here, thrilled he's still so vibrant, and thrilled I can still take him on the road. Now, are you going to be taking him on the road to WrestleCon with you? Well, we've been talking about it. Uh, you know, there, there's been some interest at WrestleCon. Uh, I think the fans there would love to see him, considering, you know, the fact that he's not the WWE Hall of Fame yet, which is like saying Babe Ruth is in the Hall of Fame in, in, in Major League Baseball. Uh, you know, so, yeah, I, I believe there's a very good chance that Dominic Knutson could end up being at WrestleCon. And I have no doubt that if he is, uh, there will be an incredible turnout for him. That will be very cool, and you'll be with uh, Jerry Lynn and Mikey Whipwreck at WrestleCon, and we'll pr- be promoting WrestleCon in the coming weeks. Obviously, you know one of the biggest events at the uh, the WrestleMania weekend uh, festivities that take over the the area that WrestleMania is in, and uh, we'll cover that as it comes in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but Shane, I mean, there's so much to talk about. We have stuff that Ooh. we didn't get to last week. We have stuff that was just added to the docket tonight. So I'm going to let you direct traffic. You go wherever you want to go and start because, I mean, folks, if you can't tell already, he's, uh, he's ready to go. So, Shane, I'm going to let you kind of drive the show wherever you want to go and where you want to start. Well, I, I think let's start with the most recent news first. I mean, the fact that Rex Tillerson is out at Secretary of State and Mike Pompeo is in, uh, the, the current CIA director. Uh, President Trump sort of about 9, 9.30 this morning released it in a tweet. And, of course, the fake news, CNN, PMSNBCs, and all the rest ran with, can you believe he fired Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, over a tweet? And as the day wore on, we began to realize from, from Tillerson, as much as anybody else, that he was told last Friday that he was going to be let go. This was hardly a shot, you know, a, 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 uh, a blind shot or a, uh, uh, you know, something he, he wasn't aware was coming. Um, I think at the end of the day, although there was a, a myriad of guessing by fake news, uh, what it boiled down to was with all these things going on in the world, President Trump having run on the uh, agenda that he thought the Iranian deal was garbage, as many millions of Americans believed. Uh, Rex Tillerson, instead of scrapping it like Trump wants to do, felt otherwise. And there were multiple other places that they disagreed on North Korea, uh, on the tariffs uh, that we'll talk about here in a second, and as president, you, know, you always hear these people, regardless of what department they're in, saying the following, I serve at the president's pleasure. That means 
if he doesn't like me anymore or like what I'm doing anymore, he or she can fire me, whoever's president. And that's pretty much what Donald Trump did today. It was well within his rights to do it. Um, and he said afterwards, President Trump said that he thanked Rex Tillerson, thought he did a tremendous job as Secretary of State, and then explained that Mike Pompeo and he had much closer philosophies. And when we're going into a period that we're going into here very shortly to be negotiating with North Korea on the nuclear issue, uh, the ICBM issue, you can't go in there with somebody that sort of believes in part of your philosophy. You've got to go into those negotiations with somebody that knows your philosophy, believes in it, trusts it, and is going to push it to the umpteenth degree. Uh, obviously, President Trump, at his right, believes that Mike Pompeo is the guy to do that. Uh, and that's who he went with. Now, that leads us to the tariff issue. You know, I, I sent you an email last week giving you a little bit of a, 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 a boning up on tariffs. Um, look, I, I'll state up front unequivocally, as a free market trader, I fervently believe in free markets, no tariffs, and believe that tariffs are a bad thing, asterisk, if the playing field is level. So... Chad, JP, and the franchise are on this podcast. We're all trading amongst ourselves. If the playing field is level, whatever it is you guys are making and selling to me, uh, or whatever I'm making and selling to you guys, we're all doing it on a uh, equal basis. So whatever it costs for production and to transport it and deliver it, et cetera, get sold in that in your markets at, at whatever markup price your retailers are going to want to sell it at, and vice versa when you send your goods to me, the same thing. The problem is since NAFTA and since uh, uh, you know the recent talk of, of the Pacific Rim Treaty and all these other free, free trade treaties that have been going around, uh, I can give you a specific real-world example of when I went to Mexico shortly within maybe, I don't know, six, eight, ten months after NAFTA was enacted in 1992. Uh, I had run out of deodorant, and Mexico is a pretty hot and steamy place, and I didn't want to stink and beef up the place, so I decided I better go buy some <laughs> deodorant. And when I went to the local pharmacia, uh, they had a section like you'd have in any pharmacy here, you know, a six, eight-foot section of deodorants and multiple brands and whatever else. There was one American brand. It was a uh, trial-sized can of Right Guard. It literally had 99 cents stamped on the label uh, here in America. You know, you, you, it's a can about three inches high, you know, pretty small can. And uh, the equivalent in pesos at the time, I forget what the conversion was, and I forget what the pesos was, but it was about a $7 conversion rate. So for a 99-cent can of Right Guard, that just on the, the, the exchange rate, I'm guessing it would have been like 30 or 40 pesos, you know, like a 30, 40-cent difference, you know, because uh, the peso was much less devalued 
below the dollar at the time and still is. Uh, it was a close to $7 in exchange rate. The Mexican brands wow. were somewhere around a dollar, $2 in, a, in equivalent ex- uh, exchange rate. So I can't imagine that there's any Mexican sitting down there and saying, I am so damned eager to try the American brand that I'll buy that little tiny trial-sized can instead of a full-size brand, 700 times the cost. It's ridiculous. And so clearly, and I don't know what made that. If it was the retailer, if it was the government, I don't know. But I'm pretty sure it was probably a multi, you know, a uh, combination of all the above. The bottom line is, Right Guard wasn't selling much deodorant in Mexico under NAFTA, based on that. Uh, so th- there's there's clearly not a level playing field. Now, you know, in that email that I gave you last week, you know, we've all had everybody listening has had hopefully in in junior high or early high school the law of supply and demand. So when supply is low and demand is high, price is high. If a 1,000 people want a loaf of bread and there's only 10 loaves of bread, the person that has those 10 loaves can charge pretty much whatever he wants. But flip that around, if there's a 1,000 loaves of bread and only 10 people want to buy it, now the retailer has to drop the price and drop it and drop it and drop it because there's other retailers trying to sell bread at the same thing, and there's a glut of bread on the market. Uh, so there's only so much bread needed at any one particular time. The same with steel. There's only so much steel that's needed worldwide on any particular year. China has been producing double what the world necessity for steel is. So I don't know what the exact numbers are, but let's say it's 100 million tons of steel, metric tons. They're producing somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 million metric tons. Now, don't please anybody go out there and say, hey, they're not producing that much per year. Again, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but whatever it is, they're producing double what the worldwide need is. Well, there's also Turkey and Saudi Arabia, South Korea, Japan, Brazil, America, Canada, Mexico, and all these other countries that are producing steel. So there's an incredible glut of steel on the world market. I recently watched, uh, last week in fact, a video from a U.S. Steel representative, an executive with U.S. Steel, and he was talking about what it costs to make a metric ton of steel. Uh, You know, if we're all buying the same raw resources, natural resources, coke and iron ore, et cetera, to make steel. If we're buying it off the world market, we're all paying the same price. It may be a few cents different here or there, but pretty much the same price. So whatever it costs U.S. steel to produce a metric ton of steel, it's also costing China and that same ballpark neighborhood and all the other countries I just listed. China was selling at less than 30% of what the cost was to make a metric ton of steel. Uh, So if they're doing that, 
then obviously the Chinese government must be subsidizing the steel, putting money into it. So, you know, you can't run a factory and say it costs us X amount of dollars to, to run this factory, to employ our employees, to pay all costs of production, all costs of raw materials, costs us X dollars, but you're going to sell it at one-third that cost. Somebody's making up the difference, and my guess is part of the Chinese government. I can't imagine that there's uh, individual investors that are saying, hey, let's sell this at 66% what we can make on it. Um, So there's another example of what what the World Trade Organization would call dumping. If you start to sell a product in the market for below what you can make it for, then the government that's selling it from that country must be subsidizing it. And if that's the case, that's the legal definition of dumping. So we've got a situation where America is, is having steel dumped here. And I also gave the example in the email, Chad, that if your company is going to build a brand new office building this year and, and need a thousand metric tons of steel to do that, you're not going to say, you know what, we're just loyal, patriotic Americans, and we're going to pay three times as much for our steel to buy American steel. When we can buy this steel over here from China for 66% less, nobody's going to do that. It just, And if so, they won't be in business long. So there's a real problem here, and the president is trying to address that. Uh Again, like I said at the top of this comment, uh, I am as fervent a free market trader and anti-tariff as anybody that's out there. But if we have a country that's willing to subsidize a product, in this case steel, to sell it at two-thirds below cost in the market, what that does is it puts incredible pressure on the American producers of steel, and they can't compete And if you can't compete, it's only a matter of time before you're out of business. And when you're out of business, that means your employees are out of work. And it also means, in this case, steel being a natural resource that is pretty important in national defense. If you can't produce the steel yourself and you're contingent on buying it from somebody who's a potential adversary, I can't imagine in a million years that adversary may say, "Eh, we're not going to sell you any steel this year. Now what do you do? Uh, There's also a steel, a specialty steel, called uh, electric steel. It's highly conductive to electricity and highly applicable in most high-tech defense applications. Uh, Drones, satellites, uh, uh, stealth applications, etc. There's only one American producer left that makes the electric steel that was invented here in America. It's a company out of Ohio called AK Steel. They are under great pressure right now and hanging on and very likely to be put out of business because China's doing the same thing with electric steel. It's doing with ruled steel, uh, selling it here for vastly below production cost. So we have to ask ourselves, are we just going to allow this to continue to happen with a country that we have an $800 billion trade deficit with per year, slightly below a trillion dollars a year. 
And are we going to do something to protect the jobs that are produced here, the steel that's produced and necessary here? Are we going to fight back? I, look, in my, in my understanding of, of free market and free trade, I can't imagine that China, who's had a pretty healthy run after adopting capitalism in the 1990s, I can't imagine that they're going to let their economy get slaughtered in a trade war. So I believe this is what a lot of the smart, intelligent pundits have been saying. This is a negotiating ploy by the president that we're going to get their attention. And if they pay attention and see what damage could be done moving forward, not just us, but to them and everybody, it might be better for them to back off a little bit and take some of the pressure off of, of, of American industries and other industries worldwide than it is to, you know, cut your own nose off to spite your face, so to speak. Uh, what's noteworthy about this is markets usually react very negatively to tariffs. And the day that Trump announced these tariffs this past week, the market responded very positively and U.S. steel stock shot through the roof, jumped up pretty strong uh, in that period. And they also announced that same day that they were reopening a plant in Gary, Indiana, and recalling 500 workers there. Remember what Trump ran on? He's going to re make America great again and bring back the steel industry and the coal industry, and the world scoffed at him. American fake news scoffed at him. Um, but these is, is not, it wasn't the kind of thing that's going to happen overnight. He's not going to flip a switch and suddenly tomorrow 10 million people are going to be employed in the steel industry in America. This has been 30-plus years. It was the early 1980s when this started, so 30-plus years in the making. But that U.S. steel was that quick to respond to it, and the market was that positive in its response to it. I think this is a positive first step. Let's hope that China and the rest of any other country that's dumping their steel here sees that Trump is serious, sees that America is serious, and backs off of this. It should be if it costs everybody the same amount within reason to produce a metric ton of steel, then why would China be producing double what the world necessity for steel is in a single year? And be trying to sell it in those other countries. The only thing I can think of is they're trying to undermine those industries in those countries. Uh, so we'll see where it goes. So far, the, the reaction in the markets has been good, and the reaction in the steel industry here in America has been good. But this is just the opening salvo of this. Let's hope that there's no trade war based off of this, and let's hope that the Chinese come to their senses. But if not, uh, Everybody's going to have to hunker down for a trade war that's going to do a lot of damage, an awful lot of damage worldwide, and probably the most damage to China. So let's hope they've got some sense to avert that. You know, and using the word tariff, I mean, just from the, the, the simpleton point of view, you know, I haven't heard the word tariff bandied about like this since uh, civics class back in eighth grade, you know, and to hear it. <laughs> brought up all the time. And obviously I know you know a lot about that, but you know, one of the things you said in your email is 
that the word tariff is misleading and inaccurate. Yep. So if you can yes. kind of elaborate on that a little bit more, because like I said, it's something that I, I personally, I haven't thought about the word tariff um, in forever, but after reading everything that you said, that's one of the things that really stood out is that the, the word itself is misleading. Oh, absolutely. Because a tariff implies that you and I are doing trade on an equal basis. You're being fair to me and I'm being fair to you. Then suddenly I say, well, you know what, Chad, now I'm going to slap a 30, 40% tax on your goods coming into here. That's a tariff. When real free trade is being conducted between two nations, and one of those nations unilaterally slaps a tax on the other, the other exporting country's good, that's a tariff. That's the real meaning of it, the word tariff. But like I just explained, that's not what's going on here. We, we, there hasn't been a level playing field in over 30 years with China. Japan is another one. South Korea, these are supposed to be allies of ours. And to date, uh, Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, none of them, they've all overlooked this and just assumed as I remember when I saw that $800 billion trade deficit number, my eyeballs about popped in, out of my head, and my first thought was, that's not right. That's, that's high. Because I remember like when I was paying real close attention to this several years ago, the trade deficits were somewhere in the 220 to $250 billion range, and that was horrible. Wow. And then I checked on it, and sure enough, we're in the $850, $860 billion range per year in trade deficit. So a tariff implies equal level playing field, and one country then unilaterally tries to uh, slap a tariff on. Now, one final point I'll make on this, just I know this, there's a lot of stuff here for people to digest. George Bush W. Uh, also slapped tariffs on Chinese steel back when he was president 10 years ago, 12 years ago, whatever it was. And... Uh, not just on steel, but on, on multiple goods coming out of China. And what the Chinese did was they were able to just make it an accounting ploy. So we sell a million goods in America every year. They're going to, George Bush is jacking the price up on these three or four things over here. So we'll just take those numbers and move them over here to these goods over here. And just like, you know, switch and bait. So, you know, which cup has the P under it kind of thing, you know, to the street, to all the street uh, uh, magicians, we'll call them in New York city. Um, you know, so that's what they did and they got around it and, and the tariffs were meaningless and did nothing to uh, straighten uh, out the situation. And it's continued to exacerbate to the point that it is now. The one thing I do have great faith in the president on is on economic policy because he's been pretty successful over an extraordinarily long time. It's not like he's been lucky for the last two or three years and whatever. Uh, so I think the president keenly understands this as well as anybody can understand it and is willing to take the step forward. You know, are we going to step out of it unscathed? If China hunkers down and decides to salvo back and fire back, no. It won't be painless, uh, unfortunately, but it won't. It also won't be painless to them. 
The difference being in, in America, where most people live above a certain line, China, that's far higher numbers, are below that line. So if a, a full-scale trade war would ensue, it would do far more damage to China than it would us, but it would do damage to us, no, no doubt about it. The question is, are the Chinese willing to crush their own population and their own economy to try to fire back instead of just doing what they should have been doing all along, fair trade? I don't believe they are. I, if one thing I take Chinese at is they're pretty intelligent at business, and I think they see in Trump somebody that understands exactly what's going on. Here's the question you have to ask under Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton. If nobody was challenging them, why would the Chinese resolve it? Why would they fix it? If every year we're running a huge trade deficit and we just consider that to be normal, why would you fix it? If you were selling your goods to me at a, at a uh, uh, subsidized rate and jacking my prices up to sell my, my goods in your country, why would you fix it? That's the question. I don't, and I think the Chinese realized that very well and took full advantage of it, as any country would. But I believe President Trump has a, a, a different tack on this. The fact that he waived the tariffs on some of our allies like Canada and Mexico and a few other countries shows that he's not trying to initiate a trade war. He's trying to resolve a specific issue. Let's hope he's successful at it. Americans would stand again at that. The American country would stand again at that as would our economy. Uh, I don't believe the Chinese are willing to go into a full-scale tr full trade war uh, and drag the, the world economy into a depression uh, just because they want to try to save some steel jobs in China. But we'll see. But China is kind of watching and waiting for this Donald Trump meeting with uh, Kim Jong-un, and there's so many ramifications from it, I mean, from multiple points of view. I mean, if you do a quick Google search, though, which I think is really funny, and you try to do a little bit of research, Shane, I'm sure you usually get a laugh at something like this. You have to sift through your uh, Colbert, Saturday Night Live, uh, Joe yeah. Rogan, and all the comedians talking about quite possibly one of the biggest moments in our world's history, uh, yeah. making light of it. But, you know, what do you, what's your take on the, the Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un meeting? And, and, you know, obviously it's much more serious uh, than a lot of uh, comedians want to make. You know, obviously there's a lot of jokes there, but, you know, what's your take on the uh, actual severity of this meeting and uh, a lot of the big, huge <laughs> worldwide ramifications that could come from it? Well, no question. I mean, look, we've talked about this before. Uh, nuclear weapons, intercontinental ballistic missiles, these are not toys that you want to have in the hands of a madman. And I don't know if anybody would sit there and look at the rocket man and say he's sane. I, and I don't mean to say he's mentally ill, but you can clearly see that when you live in a bubble where no information from the outside world is coming in, the vast majority of the population is starving. They've all been born and bred into a world with no outside information being told, you're a deity, you're a god. And suddenly, you know, in that kind of a bubble, do you think this guy's thinking clearly? He has a nation of people, millions of people worshiping him like he's a god. Yeah, a completely make-believe world 
that he lives in, a uh, lap of luxury while his people are starving. And suddenly this guy has very potent weapons at his fingertips. Uh, in, in my way of thinking, I can't imagine a world with an insane person like this. Uh, somebody that's, you know, killed how much of his own family, kills people around some of his highest generals because something went wrong and he didn't like it, and millions and millions of his countrymen and women starving. Uh, I, I can't imagine this guy having ICBMs and being able to threaten the world, saying, look, if, I, if you don't do this, I'm just going to set a couple missiles off. Now, he knows that would mean instant death to his regime but he has nothing to lose the rest of us the rest of the world that has a a modicum of sanity is not going to want that to happen and so if every other month this guy's coming out and saying I'm going to set off a couple of nukes if you don't this or you don't that and the world keeps kowtowing to him then this could become a very serious problem. It's already a very serious problem. Uh, but at, at that point, he doesn't yet have these ICBMs that are deliverable just as yet. But you, to me, you've got to take steps before this. I mean, this is something that's been decades in the making. And today, as I was researching the topic, going into it, just refreshing my memory, uh, I started looking back through and under Bill Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton in 1994 signed uh, an agreement with North Korea to deliver to them billions of dollars in aid, uh, much of it in food and much of it uh, in uh, fuel and then also nuclear reactors. Now, the nuclear reactors that they were promising was light water reactors light water reactors the 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 fuel rods once they're spent are much more difficult to produce in the, uh, weapons grade uranium not impossible but much more difficult um the the overall uh, agreement was for over five billion dollars that was in 94 i think it was signed in 95 in 2003 george bush put an end to it because the agreement, it was clear that the North Koreans weren't living up to it. He put an end to it. Now, if you go on PolitiFact or TruthOfFiction.com, they'll all tell you that President Clinton didn't spend $5 billion, that blah, blah, blah. That, you know, that, but if you read further, it shows you that a vast portion of that $5 billion was transferred to them and that the 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 building of the nuclear reactors was halted and uh you know so you sort of get into this murky area was it five billion wasn't it five billion i couldn't find any actual figures but from just going on a, a basic timeline from 95 when the agreement was signed to 2003 it tells you that probably a vast portion of that five billion was transferred into north korea by and large, this entire time, North Korea did not live up to the agreement. And so you had a country that was at the same time that they were smiling and saying they were, they weren't. 
and they were proceeding with their nuclear weapons program. Uh, to come up with an ICBM, this is an extraordinarily difficult thing. Uh, you know, this is physics times one million to, to be able to come up with an ICBM that can take off, go into the atmosphere, travel thousands, tens of thousands of miles potentially, re-enter the atmosphere, all the while holding together, and then deliver that warhead, and that warhead going off uh, where it creates, for, for a nuclear warhead to go off, you need multiple explosions inside the head to happen at the exact same moment that then punctures the, the nuclear contents. If one of those explosions goes off, the nuclear fission doesn't take place. So this is an extraordinarily difficult thing to pull off that they still haven't been able to, but they've made incredible strides in the, in the last 20 years. On the verge now of having a deliverable ICBM, what was noteworthy was during the agreement phase, until George W. Bush put a halt to it in 2003, was they went from a couple ounces of weapons-grade plutonium to enough to, to produce 60 deliverable ICBM warheads. And that was in 2003, or 15 years later. So they've clearly got plenty of weapons-grade plutonium, and now they're on the verge of having the, the ability to deliver that anywhere in the world to any country in the world. So you have to ask yourself, are you willing to allow this guy to have them uh, in a uh, what Barack Obama calls strategic patience? Well, if they get them, they get them. You know, Russia had nuclear bombs at the same time we had them and no nuclear war took place. I would like to believe that the Russian leaders, as crazy as they may have seemed at the time, were fairly intelligent and rational human beings. They also were very fearful of a, pro, uh, 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 a doctrine called uh, MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. So you set off an, an ICBM, we're going to set off all of ours, you're going to set all of yours off, which means humankind is going to be wiped out. Nobody wins in that case. Nobody wants to fight a, a war that nobody wins and everybody loses at. That's, that's just not a smart thing to do. So MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction, literally kept the world safe. I'm not so sure I'd be willing to trust this guy in North Korea to believe in the same kind of a doctrine, that if he would feel threatened, and let's face it, when you live in a country that's completely isolated, uh, it's pretty easy to feel paranoid and feel threatened. Is it possible that this guy might get to some point at, at, at for whatever reason, the wind blows the wrong way that day. He's having a bad day and believes we got nothing to lose. Let's just launch. And I don't think there's any sentient policymaker on the planet or sentient adult or sentient parrot out there that wants to see this guy with nuclear weapons. So we have to believe in our leaders. And in this case, President Trump, now putting Pompeo, Mike Pompeo is a very accomplished guy, graduated head of his class at, at uh, West Point, uh, Harvard educated. Uh, he's been involved in government, uh, I think a four-time uh, representative. You know, so this guy's a pretty accomplished guy, and he's much more in line with Trump's way of thinking 
and approaching this from a position of strength. So uh, right now, it seems the, the very fact that this meeting is even taking place is astounding because in the past, uh, Barack Obama, W, and Bill Clinton have all said they wouldn't meet with North Korea. The thinking being that they're not, they're not an equal partner to us. Well, you're talking to people, the North Koreans are an incredibly pr- proud people, as many in, in the Far East are, and you're telling them that you don't deserve a seat at my table because you're on the same level as me. Well, you're already starting at a disadvantage because you're already telling them you think they're a piece of shit and you're not. Not a real smart way to start a negotiation. So the fact that Donald Trump has even been able to get this guy to the table tells me that this guy is afraid of moving forward on the path he's been on. Why not? I mean, I, I mean why would he be you know, afraid? Because, you know, remember when Trump came out with the fire and fury comment uh, and, and the fake news, CNN and PMSNBC and all the rest of them went crazy. He's going to start a thermonuclear war. Well, newsflash, no thermonuclear war started over it, talking in a language that Kim Jong-un could understand very clearly. It was his language. And he suddenly is face-to-face with a guy who's talking on the same level he is, and especially the way the fake news has portrayed Trump, this guy may not be rational. He may not be sane. And in that case, fake news has actually helped Donald Trump, I believe. Because now Kim Jong-un is looking at this guy, and he's not quite sure. I think what Trump is doing is a replay of what uh, Richard Nixon called the madman theory, the madman doctrine. If I can make the Russians then believe that I'm so nuts, I might just push the button, it keeps them a little bit more on their heels. And I think that's exactly what Donald Trump is doing and has done and he's gotten this guy to the negotiating table. Now let's see what Donald Trump can do as a negotiator. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny to me because the whole lead up to this was that because this was all such an impossibility of ever having a meeting with this guy and getting this guy to think cogently that Donald Trump was bringing the world closer to nuclear uh, holocaust. And instead he's gotten the guy to come to the table to negotiate. So, so far, so good. Much further ahead than the fake news would have had you believe when this all started. And now let's hope that Donald Trump, especially through the sanctions that Trump has enacted, the toughest sanctions in history, and China following through at, at Trump's behest. Uh, so suddenly, North Korea truly is isolated. They can't feed themselves. They're running out of energy. Uh, they're running out of money, and they're coming to the negotiating table. Do you just think that's because Kim Jong-un suddenly came to his senses today, or do you think it's he's afraid of moving much further ahead and doesn't have the resources to move ahead? I believe it's the latter, uh, not the former. And we'll see what happens. But, you know, still a lot of work to do ahead. But I would say so far... Based on what I've seen, Trump's policies are working, and we need to continue to apply the pressure. That was the big thing here. When this got announced, Trump came right out and said, the sanctions will stay, 
until we meet. He didn't say, well, we'll ease the sanctions a little bit and meet to show good faith or whatever else. He's keeping the pressure on, the maximum pressure on, to make this guy think twice and thrice about what he's doing, and we'll see what comes of it. I'd say right now we've got a better than 50-50 shot of getting something done. Who knows? Uh, but I, I, I'd say so far all the uh, – the cautions that we had gotten and the caveats we had gotten from the fake news outlets has been much overblown and completely errant on the outcome. And right now, the score is one nothing Trump to the fake newsers. Now let's hope it it goes better. But you know we're we're farther ahead now than we were when this all began. And let's hope that Trump uh, is successful and trying to dissuade this guy from going much further down this avenue. And I think his approach was actually really good because sometimes the ignoring the, the bully, if you will, North Korea is kind of trying to be the bully. Sometimes ignoring them isn't a good option, like uh, the Obamas and the Clintons and the Bushes did. And some people say you got to stand up to the bully, but I kind of like the Trump approach where you bully the bully. You like that approach? Right. It seems to be working. Well, it, it is working. That's that's the point I just made, and you know, it's you know, the rest of the the fake news outlets were saying he's 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 going to cause a nuclear war, a thermonuclear war, and it was more they were placing the blame on Trump, not on the rocket man in North in North Korea. Uh, to me, just showed their true colors. Um, yeah, sometimes you have to. Hey, look, I don't place other than I disagree with the policies in, in most cases. You can't fault Bill Clinton or George W. or Barack Obama for trying another avenue. But now clearly we have enough, uh, what's the, the old saying, the proof is in the pudding. We have enough pudding to prove that uh, kissing this guy's ass or kissing this regime's ass hasn't worked, that they've taken advantage of it every step of the way, They've, say, they've shown no good faith in their negotiations or in the way they followed up on treaties, previous treaties with the, with the United States and the world. Uh, the, the treaty with Bill Clinton also included China, Russia, South Korea, Japan, America. There were multiple signatories to, to this treaty that they ignored. So they, they, they basically flipped the middle finger at the rest of the world. At all the while where they were still continuing with their nuclear program. So clearly that path for 30 years has not worked. Maybe it's time to try something different. Here's a guy who's tried something different for a little more than a year, and it's already showing progress, far more progress than the previous three administrations. So I'm willing to give benefit of the doubt to where I see the proof, and so far so good with Donald Trump. Let's continue to support it and, and, and hope that he's able to push this thing through. But, you know, when you're dealing with crazy people, uh, you know, and, and a guy that's telling his people he's a deity, you know, it's uh, maybe it's a little bit beyond hope that you think you could talk sense to a guy like that. I don't know. But it, at very least, talk to him in a language that he understands, and I think that's what Trump has been doing. Now, Speaking of Trump, and this is kind of a, an interesting issue here because it's kind of, uh, you know, rearing its ugly head again, not to say that 
porn stars are, are all liars or anything like that. But should we <laughs> necessarily be believing a porn star over the president? And do the or do the Democrats really take this seriously, or are they just so anti-Trump that they're just willing to believe anything anyone says negatively about Trump? Yes, exactly. So. Let's start. Let's go back to the basics and start from this and build up from there. So, in 2006, Stormy Daniels, what a great name, right? I'd love to go see a Stormy Daniels movie. Um, she signs a non disclosure agreement to not disclose these details. She claims that she was having an affair with the uh, then. Uh, head of Trump Enterprises. And so let's just ask one question. What law was broken if he was having an affair with a porn star? What red-blooded American guy out there listening today right now wouldn't have loved to do the same thing? Um, There is no law against this other than in his marriage, uh, you know, that, that's a different story. But as, as far as talking about the president of the United States, laws broken, not broken, whatever, there's, not, there's nothing here. There's nothing, you know, little newsflash, there were other presidents that did this pretty routinely. Uh, John Kennedy was a well-known womanizer. And one of the guys that is a uh, rock, rock star poster boy for the Democratic Party, Bill Clinton, <laughs> Bill Clinton <clears throat> had something stuck in my throat that I had to get out. Uh, they talk about that guy like he still walks on water. And he was a national embarrassment when it came to this. But as the impeachment hearing showed, uh, you know, you're not going to impeach a president and, and successfully, I should say successfully impeach a president, even though he lied under oath. Because the vast majority of Americans believe that even though he lied under oath, it was for something stupid that was between him and Hillary, um, not breaking a law or a, you know some you know uh, creating a real constitutional crisis. So if we start there, that let's let's give the the liberals their their uh, the benefit of the doubt. Trump's guilty. Trump had an affair with this woman in 2006. He didn't announce running for president until 2015 and won late 2016. He's been president since January of 2017. 2006 seems to precede that by a pretty wide margin. Now, let's get into the the agreement, the non-disclosure agreement. Um, His attorney, Cohen, uh, had has stated publicly that he paid her out of his own cash to keep this, you know, as a, as a quiet thing going into the election, as anybody can understand. Uh, but she's now wanting to come. She, her attorneys had sent an, uh, an ultimatum to the president saying, lift the non-disclosure and allow her to go on 60 minutes to talk where she was being offered vast sums of money and let her talk about this or else. And the time frame, the, the, the deadline that they had given had come and passed, I think, earlier today or yesterday. 
And now they're threatening. Now the real shit's going to hit the fam. Now let's just analyze this for a second. If a non-disclosure agreement, if you break a non-disclosure agreement, there's no criminality in that. It's a civil issue. So if you have a non-disclosure with the franchise and you go out and you tell my secrets, I can't go and get the courts to come down on you and put you in jail for 100 years. I can sue you. And if I win, make you pay through the nose. It's a civil issue, not a criminal issue. So if she had goods on the president, she's already mentioned, as her attorney did, that she has multiple donors lining up to offer millions of dollars to go public with this story. If she had any real dirt on the president, you don't think that with all these donors lining up behind her, and I'm sure George Soros and guys like that are probably among them, that she would have gone public already? This is a bluff game. Uh, she's trying to make it sound like she's got some egregious goods on the president, and this is much ado about nothing. And you mark more words in the end of this, if she does talk, there, there will be nothing there. It will be a whole lot of he did this and he did that, but there will be no, in other words, there's no love child hiding out there somewhere or that, you know, he offered her some posh job as an ambassador to keep quiet or something like that that would be illegal. Uh, this, is, this, is a, this is tabloid America. This is the National Enquirer on full display. Um, you know, it's... Here, this leads you to the problem of what's been wrong with fake news all along, where they have these every, I mean, 91% of stories, the Pew, as based on Pew Research, which is pretty reputable, 91% of the stories about the president in the last year have been negative stories. It's pretty hard to claim impartiality, which all journalism is supposed to be based on, claiming that over nine out of 10 stories are negative about a particular topic, in this case, President Trump. Now you've been telling the country all this time, everything is bad about this guy. This guy can't walk and chew gum. He's not worthy of being president. He's not qualified. And all these things, and yet all these good things keep happening. The economy continues to boom. We've got a meeting with Kim Jong-un to try to de-escalate de de this whole nuclear uh, uh, ICBM issue, uh, all of these things, things continue to go good and go in, in, in a positive direction for the country, and yet all this time, fake news, CNN, PMS, NBC, and all the rest of them have been telling us that all, this guy is an idiot and all the rest of the things. Now comes this story about a woman who had signed an NDA. Now, here's the best part. On the NDA, she claims, and her attorneys claim, that because he didn't sign it, it's invalid. So she's allowed to go ahead and move forward. Well, then move forward. Why didn't you move forward? Here's the problem. It was notarized by, the, uh, by a, a duly elected uh, and appointed notary, in the state of New York, it authorizes for every time she breaks it, 
for her to pay a one million plus dollar fine for each uh, 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 infraction of the NDA. And so, why is she going public? If she has all these multi-millionaire donors willing to pay for her to go public with this story, do you think they want her to go, they're they're willing to line up with all this money to hear her say she had sex with the president, she gave the president a BJ or a pipe job, or, or, or do you think they're thinking she's got some real loaded gun based on the way she's portrayed this to everybody? Because it's a $1 million fine per infraction. She's got multiple multimillionaire donors lined up on the other side to pay these fines for her. And it's not like she's going to go to jail if she breaks the NDA. So why hasn't she gone public? I'm going to go way out on the limb and say, because she's got nothing. There's nothing there. And she's leading everybody on, and fake news is lining right up to make themselves look like total idiots again, as they've done how many times over the last year. Mark my words, there will be nothing that comes out of this. This is just a – and when this one blows past, there will be another one past this and another one past that and another one past that. Uh, it's ridiculous, ridiculous. Uh, anybody that knows law and knows how to follow along with this stuff could look here and say, based on what's being reported, that she has all these multimillionaire donors lined up to pay her fines and everything else. What's the worst that can happen? She gets fined and these donors pay her fines for her? Or does she think it's possible that once she goes public with a whole bunch of hot air bullshit nothing, that these donors that are guaranteeing paying these fines for her suddenly go, well, that's not exactly what we thought you were going to say, and maybe pull their money? Because, again, it's, it's not like she's going to go to prison for breaking an NDA. That's a civil fine, not a criminal fine. So you do the math. You tell me why she hasn't gone public yet. Let's see what happens. But if I was a betting person out there, I'd be willing to bet on the side of what the franchise is telling you as opposed to what fake news is telling you. You know, in 2006, when all this supposed craziness was going on with Stormy and with Donald Trump, there was another interesting interview going on with Judith Regan and O.J. Simpson, and it was about – Basically, how did he do it? It was kind of the confession, so to speak. It was all centered around that book that he wrote, If I Did It. And yep. it, it, this was obviously it was played on the other night in Fox. Fox was trying to get, I guess, a big rating, and they only really got $3 million. Supposedly, they were looking for over $10 million. But whatever. I mean, the ratings didn't work out quite as well they wanted. But I don't know if you saw that this hypothetical OJ interview about how he would have done it kind of looked like a little bit of a confession to me. Did you see the video? Uh, did you watch the show at all? What did you think about uh, the craziness that is the uh, the O.J. Simpson story? I saw clips of it. I didn't get a chance to sit and watch the entire thing. Uh, but I was familiar with it based on what had leaked out at the time when he did this uh, interview. I, I think America has reached a state of O.J. fatigue 
I, I think anybody that has a brain in their head knows that he was implicated in this murder in some way uh, and very likely committed them. Um, but because he was found innocent, this is where you can see the conundrum with the Constitution, that it says no double jeopardy. So because the state of California went so strong forward with such scant evidence uh, at the time, in my opinion, that, uh, and he had a pretty damn good legal team put together to, to, to combat off some of that, um, or off all of it, that it, the state of California and the nation, I think, would have been much better served for there to be a mistrial and for this to have been thrown out or for the prosecution to held or withheld pressing these charges so immediately until they did have definitive evidence. I, and without reliving the whole trial, we all remember about the, the mishandling of evidence and all the rest of it. It just showed how easily it is in a, a bureaucracy as large as the state of California for stuff like this to get uh, plugged into the wrong place. Like for instance, the evidence, there's the evidence chain and you know, the, uh, the, the people that took the blood, you know, there, there was, you know, very questionable aspects about the way that they had kept the chain of command and who was in control of that blood and how that blood was stored and, you know, and all the rest of it. And then some of that blood gone missing, if you remember. So they collect this much. And by the time they're testing it, there's that much. Is it possible to sow doubt in the, in the jury as to what happened to that missing blood. And there's a drop here and there's a drop there. Uh, it, it was a bungled case from top to bottom showing you how inept government can be when it believes it has a slam dunk. Um, the, the confession, so to speak, in, in the, in the OJ interview, the, the, the recent one, uh, the fact that, Fox received such uh, less than a third of the rating they thought they were going to tells me most people like me are sick and tired of hearing about this. It's way beyond old. And, but when you watch it and you watch some of the clips like I did in the last couple of days, you have to ask yourself, what was this idiot thinking? Now I know what he's thinking from his point of view I've already been found innocent, so you can't try me. O.J. Simpson could go on national television tonight and say, I did it. I murdered her and Ron Goldman, and there's not a thing that you can do about it because he's been found innocent by a jury of his peers, and the Constitution forbids double jeopardy. Um, now, you know, based on what he said, uh, my guess is at the time that, that interview was conducted, he was probably hard up for money and they probably offered him a nice little chunk of change. And so he figured he'd go out and he would give them, you know, a, a, a little bit of a look, see behind without really, uh, you know, giving them real evidence or anything because he always come on and say, oh, I was just, just bullshitting. But, uh, this is why when you have lawyers tell you, I don't want you to say anything don't look at anybody, don't talk to anybody. This is why they say it, because when you go out there and you open your mouth, 
no matter how smart you think you are, uh, you're liable to put your foot in your mouth. And, you know, this whole case, you know, for, for the, the young people listening, you know, that may not be able to put themselves or have the same kind of thought on this as we have, the ones that, of us that lived it, watching the white Bronco chase. And my ex-wife and I actually made a you know, popcorn and we're sitting there watching the TV the entire night. Like we're watching a, a blockbuster movie. Uh, it was craziness. And, you know, every day there were reports in the news media about they found this, they found that, you know, this piece of evidence leaking out and then later turned out to not be true. This was like a national inquirer on full display and the national news portraying it as being news. That's, that was where the real intrigue came in. And, uh, you know, for OJ Simpson, I'm sure there's probably a lot of things, probably everything he said in that, that if he could snap his fingers and go back and undo it, he would. Uh, but there, to me, there was no real surprises in there. Is there anybody out there with a brain in their head that doesn't believe he committed these murders and got away with them, and now he's out there teasing it that he did? Again, he could go on national TV tonight and say, I did it. And, you know, of course, the reason he doesn't do that is because the backlash would be furious. Uh, but the the government couldn't come and arrest him and retry him is double jeopardy. So, you know, it's a, a bit of a civics lesson to everybody out there that, you know, uh, California way overplayed their hand and got really smug when they thought they have a slam dunk. You know, if anything I, that I've learned over the years is that there's no such thing as a slam dunk until the slam dunk has been put to the basket so when you start saying you have a slam dunk and telling everybody you have a slam dunk and you haven't dunked the ball, you're, liable, you're probably best likely to keep your mouth shut about what you have and don't have or what you're going to do with that ball until you actually put it to the hoop. And this OJ case is a clear example of that as a civics lesson uh, and a constitution uh, lesson to everybody based on the law in this country, completely mishandled by the state of California. Now, Shane, did it kind of remind you of uh, Fox's old tactics? You remember back in the early 90s where Fox was really like that renegade network where they were going there, they were going far, you know, cops had taken off, and they were going more with that shocking programming. Did you see this kind of being like a play out of the old book to try to get, uh, you know, a, a stab at ratings? I mean, to unearth something that's 10 years old, and a topic that legitimately has been beaten to freaking death, like for God knows yeah. how long. I mean, this is this is unreal. But do you know what I mean? It kind of reminds me of what they used to do in the early '90s, where they would have those real sensationalized uh, stories. I remember the Menendez murders. I mean, they put the Menendez yeah. murders on like every freaking week. It was unbelievable, but kind of crazy. They'd go back to the well once again. Yeah. Well, my, my yeah, I remember that. Like when when Fox first came out of the block and. They were going up against them. You know, when I was coming up, they always talked about the big three, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And Fox was making an attempt to be the fourth network. And, you know, that's when they came out with The Simpsons and uh, uh, what was the show that had Jim Carrey and all the rest of them on? Uh, In oh, Living, Living Color. Color. In Living Color, yeah. I mean, like these really crazy 
off-the-cuff shows that probably wouldn't have been picked up by the big three. And by and large became, you know, the staples of the early Fox network. Uh, yeah, and Fox did do a lot of that. You know, what you're talking the time frame you're talking about precedes Fox News. So everybody that understands it's listening here, Fox News would come later. But the Fox network did do a lot of this really out there, you know, hit for the walls and sometimes fall short type of approach. But uh, I think, and my guess is that in unearthing this this interview, that they probably found they had rights to it. And the fact that OJ was pretty big news a few months ago when he was released from prison, uh, that they thought they could garner a rating off of it. But clearly, OJ fatigue has set in. And like I'm one of the people that could care less. There's nothing going to bring Nicole Brown Simpson or Simpson Brown and Ron Goldman back. They've been gone for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, I think OJ is what he is. You know, it's uh, his, his own words speak for himself and the actions speak for themselves. I'm more embarrassed that California couldn't seal the deal. Uh, and it just showed you how, uh, how arrogance <laughs> can really undermine somebody. Uh, in this case, they had a slam dunk case and couldn't deliver the goods. Uh, but I think, by and large, America is so over OJ. OJ, he's not yesterday's news or last week's news. He's last decade's news. And in a 24-hour news cycle like we have today, where the the big story of today is old news tomorrow, you can imagine what a decades-old story is. Uh, I just, I just, I thought it was a real bad, bad misplay on Fox's part. I'm going to pull a little uh, trick out of usually uh, primetime's bag here, and I'm going to try to stump the franchise. <laughs> Are you ready? After, after days and days and days of me researching the topics for this show, okay, you're going to try to stump me. I'm brain dead. Shoot away. <laughs> All right. So speaking of the Fox Network, speaking of sensationalized television, the franchise Shane Douglas appeared on what Fox television show during that run of the, uh, the kind of out there TV and the, uh, the, the expose shows that were going on at the time, what show did the franchise appear on? Wasn't that, it was a show about history, wasn't it? Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, da, 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 da. They 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 would ask history questions, and then go to a commercial. Is that is that the one you're talking about? This that is not the one I'm talking about. This one fits right into what the model of uh, the Fox programming was at the time. Uh, ECW being what it was and being counterculture fit right into uh, the narrative of this show. Uh, that you can find the clip on YouTube at Shane Douglas. And this is a very, uh, you know, I, w- I don't want to give the year, but, you know, this is a pre-triple threat era franchise that does appear uh, on this show. Wow. You, you stumped me. I, I I vaguely remember doing something, I, but I can't remember what the show was. It was, come on, a current affair. Was that Fox? That was Fox, yeah, Current Affair. 
I believe it was syndicated at one point, but A Current Affair was a Fox, was a Fox television network program that ended up being syndicated, and you appeared on A Current Affair in an ECW piece that was aired around 1995. Really? I, I thought Current Affair was, uh, was just in syndication. I didn't, know, I didn't realize it was Fox. Uh, it was just Fox-based. I, well, that's a, yeah, it that's a long time the, ago. It was, yeah, it was a Fox Network property that started off, and then it was syndicated to, you know, you get it on your NBC affiliate or, you know, yeah, UPN or whatever, uh, WB. But, yeah, it started off on uh, Fox, especially mid-'90s, but ECW fitting right into that uh, Fox narrative at the time where they did, you know, do profiles on the out there and extreme and, and different uh, programming. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool little piece if you can dig it up on YouTube. It's, uh, it's definitely worth a, a viewing or two. Wow, it's you know the, the stuff you forget, right? I mean, it's uh, yeah. it, a long time ago. But I, I do remember doing a piece of them. Now that you say it, I just didn't realize that that, that, that was Fox based. Hey, those are the little things that you uh, that you realize. But I definitely uh, I recommend checking it out. It's really cool, especially to see where ECW would end up going uh, at that time. I mean, nineteen ninety five. Now, I guess for you guys to have any kind of coverage at that point was a huge victory. Oh yeah, you know, for us, you know, you know, ECW was. We have often said, uh, you know, we were the company that made it in spite of the fact that we didn't have a billion dollar corporation behind us or a Panda Energy or a Titan Sports or a Time Warner. Uh, WC or ECW did it based off of the program that we were putting on to the fans every three weeks in the ECW arena, and then any kind of outside information we could get, uh, like when uh, 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 Barry Bloom did the, uh, uh, the Beyond the Map part, uh, piece and, you know, the Paul Heyman, any kind of information we could get out there vis-a-vis whatever avenue uh, was good for us because that was a, potentially a set of ears or, or a set of eyeballs looking at ECW that may not otherwise be looking at it. And, uh, you know, I don't think, you know, like the old saying is, uh, no press is bad press. Uh, and ECW lived and died by that, you know? So the fact that ECW became what it became in wrestling history and lore, I think is by and large based on a lot of that, 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 you know, we, we said no to anybody. We were, we were whores in the sense that we'd get that information out there by, by hook or by crook. Now, Shane, I don't know if you've been paying too much attention to the WWE Hall of Fame. I know, obviously, Bam Bam should be in, and the rumor is that he might be in it next week. Dominic DiNucci, obviously, can't believe you know, he's not in already. But I don't know if you saw who is now in the WWE Hall of Fame as of yesterday. Did, did you pay any attention to who is now inducted? into the celebrity wing of the WWE Hall of Fame? Kid Rock, baby. Oh, yeah. Are you a big Kid Rock fan? <laughs> I am a big Kid Rock fan. Uh, you know, I, I met Kid Rock uh, right after he hit big. Uh, we were up in Detroit with WCW, and uh, he came to the building with the midget that he had in all his early videos. Uh, I, I don't know the guy's name off the top of my head, um, but, you know, a really cool guy. You know, he was uh, really excited to be backstage and, and be at wrestling. And, you know, I, I followed his career pretty intently 
sense. You know, he was such a genuinely good guy, you know, that you follow along with his career and see a lot of the stuff that he's done with, you know, uh, the crossover series and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, at the time, you couldn't possibly see him working with, you know, uh, uh, Bo Cephas or, you know, a lot of the other people that he has, uh, Cheryl Crow. And, you know, he's done such an amazing job, you know, based on what he had as a very fine niche coming out when he came out in the 90s. And then, you know, crossing over to all these other things, working with Leonard Skinner and and uh, 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 Hank Williams Jr. and Cheryl Crow and so many others, uh, you know, that he's one of the, like, when I, I heard him being announced for the Hall of Fame, I thought, like, there's a, finally a celebrity uh, uh, inductee that I can get behind and believe in because he, uh, he was a huge, is a huge wrestling fan. Uh, it wasn't like he was just a guy that made an appearance on a WWE show and now he's in because he's a big name. This guy is as big a wrestling fan as anybody that's ever watched wrestling and probably bigger than most. Uh, so, yeah, I was pretty pumped to hear you know about Kid Rock getting in. I, he's a good guy. I don't know if you've ever seen it, and I doubt it, but any wrestling fan out there, if they've never seen it, and this is the reason why I would just put Kid Rock in the WWE Hall of Fame celebrity wing right away, is there's a video called The Lonely Road of Faith. It's a great song that he sings, but it's a, it's a tribute from basically 63 to 2001 in the, in the WWF era. It's a very good song by Kid Rock, and it goes perfectly with them matching up the history of the WWF with that video. So on that video alone, I'd have to put him in the WWE Celebrity Ring of the Hall of Fame. Don't know if you've ever seen it, though, Shane. No, I'll check it out. No, you say that, but it's, uh, you know, I, I saw that. And, and I'll say this, you know, and, I, and again, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to sound remiss for not being able to use the kid's name, but uh, was it last week or the week before they put the, uh, uh, the young kid in uh, for – uh, I believe a cancer survivor. Um, and, and I saw that and I thought, you know, like I can have my differences with Vince and everything else, but the kind of, and, I, and I'll say this up front, uh, Stephanie McMahon has been extraordinarily out there in the forefront of, uh, of uh, working with children, uh, especially sick, sick children and giving them the light of day. And that was, like I've always said about Hulk Hogan, when I saw with Hulk Hogan working uh, as busy as he was, uh, as extraordinarily divided as his time was, would give all those kids that would come to see him in wheelchairs and, you know, really deathly ill kids, uh, he would go down and he would make each and every one of those kids feel special. And, you know, for all the different side of the WWE, when I see the kind of stuff that Stephanie does, uh, with those charities and with those kids, all you know that that to me is cool beyond belief. And uh, so kudos to them and kudos to Stephanie for that. I think it's a really classy thing that they do. Uh, and, and people know I don't say a lot good about the WWE, uh, but that to me is is you know double thumbs up. Very cool. So. You know that uh, you know I stand behind them and all they do with that 100%. Fantastic work. 
The WWE Warrior Award for the Hall of Fame this year is J.J. Robertson, a.k.a. Jarius, the young, yes. young man's name who's going to be getting the there Warrior Award, which is very cool. Yeah, and a good-looking kid, too, man. He, he he fits right in, doesn't he? I mean, it's like it's oh, yeah. perfect, perfect. You know, so, yeah, that's uh, that that's cool stuff. And like I said, double thumbs up to him for it. I stand behind that a thousand percent. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I guess I told you about my friend that I, I see in the library every week. Uh, he's uh, a good kid. And he comes in and always tells me about the, you know, who's been inducted in the hall of fame that week. And, you know, and he came in and told me about Jerry. So I, I thought that, that's okay. That, that one I can give a double thumbs up to, you know, normally I'm sort of like hot and cold on the stuff, but, that one I thought was really above board. Now, John Cena is always great with kids, and I just saw a video after yes. the, the Fastlane pay-per-view. Um, I guess it wasn't really supposed to be aired, or maybe it was aired on WWE.com or something, but he was giving out his wristbands, but he made sure he found certain kids to give wristbands in. That's great, but about five minutes before that, I was infuriated with the guy because he still, well, not really him, but the announcers, are still calling him the franchise player. When is he going to give up on, on stealing the nickname? I mean, I, I kind of <laughs> had it up already. Well, you know, it, it's uh, like I said on Twitter today. You know, I, I I never wanted to be the next nature boy or next living legend. I wanted to be the first franchise. Uh, you know, it, so you have to ask yourself: Is it homage? Uh, is it an attempted theft? Uh, you know, it's look. It, it, in the next hundred years, if you ask somebody, a wrestling fan or people that follow wrestling, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you say the franchise? You know, I feel pretty secure that I've got that nailed down. Um, not because of some legal document or whatever else, because of the work that I put in over the long haul. Uh, so uh, I, I would say that's probably not John. I would say it's probably more the company. Um, and look, I take shots at them. They're, they're free to take shots at me. Uh, but I feel very secure that when you tell a thousand fans, uh, ask them who's the franchise. If you got one that says John Cena, I'd be surprised. Well, you, you better not get any, uh, I wouldn't think, uh, it's just, it's just funny that I guess they, they keep trying to push that for for some reason i don't know it it's it is weird but anyway as i as i move on i just wanted to go into a little bit of afa a little ask franchise anything since we haven't done it in a couple of weeks i or you know really kind of haven't focused on it. it's kind of been wishy-washy with it but i wanted to get back to it and just randomly ask a question from frank in a montreal canada hey franchise if you had been in the WWE during the attitude era and could have picked any two guys from the WB to be in a triple threat with you, who would those two guys be? Oh, man. That's a hard one to say. Uh, You know, my approach to the the, uh, triple threat had always been guys that, uh, you know, were, were, were players that were main event guys. You know, it wasn't just, you know, here's a couple of my buddies, and we're going to try to push this this group. Um, so the original incarnation with Dean Malenko and, and Chris Benoit, 
you know, clearly both of them were main event players and, and, and guys that could go in the ring. Uh, when we had Brian Lee step in with Chris Candido initially, uh, you know, he was being pushed at that point to be a main event player in ECW, and he'd just come off the, the, uh, the, the fake Undertaker gimmick. And so, you know, he was a name that was out there, and Brian was a pretty, uh, you know, pretty good hand for in the ring. And then when he left, we put Bam Bam into that position. So uh, going back into that attitude era, I, I would have, you know, obviously I would say Austin would be one that would pop into mind immediately. Um, I, and quite possibly Mick Foley, you know, because uh, of my connection with Mick, you know, going way back to our days of first breaking into the business. I think Mick would have been a, uh, like a wild card type of uh, triple threat member, you know, somebody that was willing to do the things that he was willing to do to his body. Um, boy, that's a, that's a really good question. I've never, I've never thought of that. You know, there's so, so many different eras and so many different faces and names. Uh, when I, you know, people always ask me like, you know, if you could wrestle anybody from every, any era, what would it be? Well, God is, is many people's I've wrestled to begin with. And then, as many as I grew up watching, you know, over, over so many years, uh, you know, you can't answer that in 280 characters on Twitter. I can't anyway. Uh, I, I can do my best to try. Uh, last week I got asked, you know, uh, in the WWE today, who would be in the triple threat? And, you know, my mind automatically goes to guys that I, I'm familiar with. Uh, so, just based on that, AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, and Bobby Roode would get would get the nod because I've worked with all three of them in TNA. Um, the big fan for all three of their work, uh, and uh, for all three of them, all very professional guys, very good guys. Uh, but that's not to say that to give a slight to anybody else that's in the WWE right now. These are the guys that immediately pop into my head because I've worked with them, but. You know, you look at like Dolph Ziggler and, uh, 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 you know, Kevin Steen, Kevin Owens. Uh, there are so many guys up there that, you know, that really have ability. My criticism of the industry is that, by and large, once they get to the WWE, they're being controlled by micromanagement of guys that have never been in the ring and, so it's it's impossible for them to relay any information to make somebody better. You know, so you take a Seth Rollins, for instance, a phenomenal in-ring performer, uh, a great presence, very charismatic. But once you get there in the WWE, what, is Vince McMahon going to teach him how to be a better in-ring performer? Is, uh, you know, a producer up there going to teach him how to be a better in-ring performer? The industry had always been predicated on the younger talent learning their craft and being able to go in and stand toe-to-toe with a guy that's already proven himself in the industry. And that's what's been sanitized out of the industry uh, with the WWE and their hegemony over the industry. So, uh, you know, to go back to that era, I would say clearly Austin would be wanting to jump out because – of our connection, having worked in uh, worked each other so many times with the Hollywood Blondes versus me and Steamboat, 
and very probably Mick Foley, again, based off of our friendship and our connection, going back to Dominic Tanucci School in Freedom, Pennsylvania. Now, this is a very interesting thing that I was looking at the other day, and it has to do with the Macho Man Randy Savage has an unreleased DVD coming out in May, and it's basically 41 matches that have never been released before on a WB DVD or Blu-ray or whatever you want to call it. So as I'm looking through disc one, I see Superstars, September 13th, 1986. And I say, huh, that name looks familiar, Macho Man versus. Do you know, can I provide us of the franchise, do you know who Macho Man wrestled on September 13th, 1986? Mike Kelly. A.K.A. Or was it Troy, Ma- AKA or was it Troy, Troy Martin. Martin. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I, see, it was that time frame I started using Mike Kelly. <laughs> you know, as I look back at that, you know, what a ridiculous thing that a young kid in the business that had no idea of any future coming down the road. But I knew at that time that if there was going to be any future, that I didn't want to be known as being a, a, a job guy or an underneath guy. Uh, so I started using the pseudonym Mike Kelly. And it was right in that same time frame. Uh, there were a few matches, one, two, maybe three, that I did with my real name. And then right after that, started using Mike Kelly. Uh, so I, Randy Savage was the first day I went in there. Uh, Dominic sent us up to do jobs to get experience. And uh, I wrestled that first night. I believe it was Macho Man. Uh, Orndorf was last. And I want to say either Butch Reed or Harley Race on that first day. Uh, they did three or four hours of tapings and I may have even wrestled four times at night, but I, I know three for certain. But Randy Savage was the very first match that I had in the WWF uh, going up there as a you know young, greenhorn, snot-nosed kid that didn't know anything. And uh, the one thing I will say is Randy was such a class act that when we came back from the ring, uh, he came up and he thanked me multiple times and told me I did a great job. Um, And he said to me, words that I've thought about a million times over my career, he said, always remember, kid, if you plan on having a career in this business, always make sure you thank the guy that's putting you over. And uh, and that always stuck with me. You know, he was, uh, I always got along very well with Randy. You know, he was one of the guys I really looked up to, and he was such a, larger-than-life personality, you know, as a kid coming into the business and a fan of the business and then working with him and stepping in that direction into the industry. Uh, you know, Randy always really stood out as one of those guys in my head. So, you know, it's uh, – I had seen it on Twitter, and I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing that because to be on uh, a, a Randy Savage, Macho Man – uh, DVD to me is pretty cool, like one of the bucket list items, you know, so cross off another one for the franchise. But uh, my bigger question is, I wonder when the royalty check's going to come from the WWE for that. <laughs> That's what I, was, I was just going to ask that. That was my question. I was just going to ask yeah. that. I was gonna, I'm just, royalty I'm, alert. I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm going to start holding my breath tonight because I, 
<laughs> in other words, I won't be around for episode 40. Cause <laughs> <laughs> well, I could give you the breakdown of Mike Kelly in the WWF, if you'd like, really quick. Uh, Mike Kelly yeah, please. teamed with – ready for this? This is pretty cool. Is, is, was this the legit – is this Nick Kaniski as in Gene Kaniski's son that you teamed with against yes. Bob Orton and Don Morocco? All right, there you go. Yes. Yep. All right, so we got Nick Kaniski and Mike Kelly, uh, um, unfortunately, losing to Bob Orton and Don Morocco. Then, Damn. how about this one? <laughs> Jake Roberts defeating Mike Kelly. Yep. And then the natural Butch Reed defeating Mike Kelly. And then handsome Harley Race defeating Mike Kelly. See so that? There's Mike Kelly's. There's Mike Kelly's run in the WWF, and then as Troy Martin uh, in a losing effort to the Macho Man and, of course, your uncle, uh, Paul Orndorff. <laughs> See, Mike Kelly had no career ahead of him whatsoever. He was doomed to ignominy, but the franchise would would, would uh, escape unscathed and go on to bigger and better things down the road, having learned from every one of those guys. Well, bigger and better things for sure, Shane. You had an amazing career, and we get to talk about pieces of it as we, like I said at the top, this podcast is everything. And we get to dive into your career in, in different parts, and I love how we do it. And if you want to contribute and you want to ask the franchise anything, please hit us up on our email address. It's thetriplethreatpod at gmail.com. Again, it's thetriplethreatpod at gmail.com. I'm thinking about some kind of promotion for a uh, Ask the Franchise uh, segment where either uh, top five questions that are submitted in one day get some kind of something, a shout-out, something like that, or uh, one randomly selected person gets some kind of prize. I'm trying to figure it out, but I don't know exactly how I want to execute it. But throw us some questions. Get us in here and and maybe throw something at Shane that maybe he's never been asked before. We've had that a few times come up in the past, but send it over to the Triple Threat Pod at gmail.com, as well as ask Shane some questions on Twitter. And if he doesn't catch them, John and I will, and we will collect them and put them in our little database, and we will, um, we will get to them. We definitely will because we love hearing these fan questions. It's a, it's a lot of fun. And one of the best parts of this show, but i got to tell you, Shane, this was a hot one this week. This was, uh, this was pretty crazy, all the stuff that we covered, and it started off like a house of fire. But I, I don't want to uh, let the cat out of the bag, but perhaps next week a surprise guest will be joining us. Shane, what are your thoughts? Really? Wouldn't happen to be a a certain sidekick that I would recall, would it? I I have uh you have wrestlers on her, I'll have uh scouts on her here. I cannot reveal yet who our special guest may be. Maybe. We don't want to uh we don't want to say anything for sure, but Perhaps uh, after weeks and weeks of building, perhaps we may have a special guest on next week's show, but I guess you're just going to have to tune into a huge episode number 40 to find out. Wait, I'll only get to find out until next week? Oh, Shane, you're going to have to find out next week when we pick up the phone, but uh, I'm going to leave everybody else hanging just just as much as you are. That's not fair. I mean... I'm supposed to get certain inside information and certain like uh, perks to the to the position, and you're not going to tell me who's going to be on next week. <laughs> We're going to have a guest we'll right me. here on episode forty. 
you are not going to have to prepare one single solitary bit for for this guest. If uh, if this does go through, you're not going to have to prepare one single solitary bit. But we are just going to have to wait and see. And I think we're going to leave it on a uh, on a cliffhanger from there and see uh, how this week turns about and see what happens in episode 40. I think you meant that to try to assuage me, but that actually makes me a little bit more nervous for next week. <laughs> no I'm, need to be nervous, Shane. You know we got your back. I got a little scratchy throat. I might be calling in sick next week. I'm not sure <laughs> if I'll make it. <laughs> hey, no, I'm listen, dying to know now. Now, you, now you're driving me crazy. I had to play this up on Twitter all week and say, who the hell's going to be on here? Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon's going to be here next week, isn't he? Please. Well, we, put in a call. we put in a call to Stanford, and uh, unfortunately our calls have not been returned. Uh, I put Damn. in a call also. I, well, I know John. <laughs> John, with your history, I know you put in a call to somebody in Stanford, and uh, they were a little paranoid to find out how you got that phone number. But uh, I don't want to dive into. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't want to dive into any any secrets of the show. Yeah, how the hell did you people get this number? <laughs> Shane, you'd be surprised. He's gotten those calls before, John. Have you not? I actually did, and I was actually shocked to find that high of a ranking official in WWE. Excuse me be that paranoid about, you know, somebody trying to talk to him. I thought that was a little crazy. <laughs> I'm telling you, they're, 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 they're trafficking in slave, slave uh, addicts or something up there because they're so, sex slaves because they're, they're, they're like no good up there. They're like afraid to talk to people and checking out JP. Like when you look, when you're worried about JP having a phone number, like there's, there's probably bigger concerns in the world it just tells me they're up to no damn good as i've always believed <laughs> it's a great story and unfortunately we may, we're gonna have to save that for off air so we uh we're, we're not gonna dive into <laughs> yeah. it it's a great it's a hilarious story shane you would definitely uh get a kick out of it so i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna be very vague and i'm gonna be very cryptic and not telling the story but it's uh it's pretty damn funny uh if i do say so myself with all that being said in the triple threat podcast world if you want to reach out to us please hit us up on twitter at the franchise sc for shane or for us at two-man power trip please be sure to visit our website which is tmptofwrestling.com on that website you can access the triple threat podcast tab where you can find all the youtube videos the podcast downloads as well as the links for the triple threat podcast t-shirts which, I mean, if you see the pictures of Shane during his meet and greets at all the shows he's doing, he's wearing it, folks. So, please, buy one and bring it to him. I mean, come on. He'll sign it. He'll, uh, he'll, he'll help you try it on. I mean, he'll do everything he can to have you feel as good as you can be in your Triple Threat podcast T-shirt. But also check out our page for TMPT Con 2 coming your way to Richmond, Virginia on May 19, 2018, this glorious year. It's only a few months away. You get all the information there and on our Facebook page. Whew. That's enough out of me, Shane. Where are you going to be this coming weekend doing your thing out there in the wild, in the the rings of professional wrestling? Well, you know what? This weekend, I've got a very rare weekend off that I had a cancellation and decided I'm going to take the weekend off and spend it with my boys. And uh, so this is a vacay week for the franchise. And uh, 
Next weekend, we will be in North Carolina, and looking forward to that for the Uncle Ivan Koloff uh, Wrestling Classic every year, and looking forward to that, but that will be next weekend. And this coming weekend, the franchise is going to be lazy and spending time with my boys. All right. Yeah, and you can't beat that. And that's uh, that's pretty damn good. So enjoy that, Shane, and we will check you out here on episode number 40 next week. It is going to be one hell of a deal. So, Shane, I'm going to hand it over to you. Please take us out in only the way that the franchise can. Hey, don't take the franchise word for anything I've told you today. Take your time to Google it. Go out and do your own research like I tell my own kids on every damn thing I tell them. Don't take my word for it. Do your own research. If you prove me wrong, come on here. We'll give you a brand-new car, some kind of passing, uh, uh, maybe a trip around the world, all-American cruise, something like that. If you prove me wrong, good luck in that, though, because Vince couldn't do it in all these years. But listen, episode 40, the big one coming up, big 4-0 next weekend. Make sure you're here next week for number 4-0. Otherwise, going to get your ass franchised. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.